everyone, this is Freen, and you're listening to Super Smash Hoes. Today I'm extremely excited because I'm joined by Zoe and Isabella, the founding editors of Feminist Food Journal. I'll let Zoe and Isabella introduce themselves. Isabella, would you like to start off? Yes. Hi. Thank you so much for having us on the podcast today. We're, we're super excited to be here. Um, so yeah, my name is Isabella. I make up one half of Feminist Food Journal, along with my co-founding editor, Zoe Johnson, who's also here today. Hi. Thanks, Isabella. Thanks, Farine, so much for having us. We're really super excited to be here just after the launch of our first issue um, and are really um, grateful for... Su- all of the support we've um, felt from Super Smash Hose and um, just really um, excited about the uh, attention that Feminist Food Journal has um, garnered in in these last few weeks. And I think it just really speaks to um, the need to be talking about these issues and to have more platforms uh, discussing these types of issues. So thanks so much, Freen. Thank you, guys. I was so excited when I came across you guys on Instagram. Um, This is before the launch of your first issue. But everything you're doing, I find, excuse me, so interesting. Um, And with that, before we get into the nitty gritty, why don't we start with what is Feminist Food Journal? For sure. So Feminist Food Journal, or what we've lovingly nicknamed FFJ, is a quarterly online magazine that focuses on the ways that food and feminism intersect in private lives, the collective consciousness, policy, and practice. So in essence, this means that we share stories related to women, non-binary people, and food. Um, And we've done this through our first issue, Milk, uh, which just dropped last week, uh, eight days ago, but who's counting, uh, with nine written and audio pieces um, by writers from all over the globe, including uh, a few pieces from from Zoe and I. Um, And right now we're an online-only magazine, uh, because that was really the only way we could launch with the very limited capital that we had. Um, And we wanted to focus on quality content over all the bells and whistles that go into producing a print magazine. Um, But we are hoping to experiment with an end-year coffee table zine that would encapsulate uh, the highlights of the first four issues we have planned for this year. So let's take it back a step. You said feminist food, right? So how does feminism come into play with food? I think, you know, it's not my first thought when I think about food, which it maybe should be considering feminism is my world. But, you know, I generally think about things like sustainability, maybe with food or supply chain. My first thought isn't feminism. So can you explain to me how food is a feminist issue? Yeah, for sure. Um, You know, I think um, everything is a feminist issue and and food is no different. Um, uh, I think that food represents a really interesting entry point to look at all kinds of social issues and social dynamics. Um, just because of how central it is to every single one of our lives. Um, And so as someone kind of interested in feminism and and interested in using feminism as as also a a lens to understand um, structures of power and domination that extend beyond just just gender dynamics, um, food just is a really useful tool for doing that because um, it really allows us to see the ways that uh, social injustice is constructed and perpetuated um, in food systems, which which are really foundational to um, all of our lives in different ways. And, and when I say food systems, I'm talking about kind of all, all levels from uh, production, processing, distribution, consumption, and then waste at the end of that. 
Um, and I think I should also stress that when, when we talk about um, feminism and feminist food journal, we're really talking about this kind of intersectional feminist perspective. Um, so looking at um, the various kinds of identities um, and, and how, as I said, kind of power is and, and structures of power are constructed around them. Um, so things like obviously race, class, sexuality, ability, religion, caste, age, just to name a few. Um, and really looking at the ways that, or using food to look at the ways that these identities are interlinked and reproduced. And yeah, I think, I think it's just, it, it provides so many opportunities, um, so many different ways um, to look at the way that, that power is embedded in every single element of our daily lives and really um, to examine just how uh, pol much politics there is in kind of our personal lives. Yeah, that's really interesting because, you know, to, part of it to me sounds very common sense, right? As a feminist, we apply this feminist ethic to to examining the power imbalances in our everyday lives, right? Like you said, the personal is political. So how many different ways can we look at everything happening in our life through a feminist lens to understand how power imbalances and inequality impact us? That being said, food in particular, it's quite niche. At least to me, it seems quite niche. I've, I genuinely have never come across something as unique as what you guys are doing and I love it. And I, how did you guys choose food? How did you get into food? Was there a catalyst that really made it like, this is your area. This is where you want to apply, you know, your feminist perspectives. This is what you want to look at. Why did you decide food? Yeah. So I think, first of all, Zoe and I both grew up uh, in like super foodie families. And hilariously, we actually grew up in the same city, even though we only met in Berlin. Um, very, well, honestly, very late in life makes us sound old. It wasn't that late in life. It's just the end of our 20s. Um, but but for me, and I think also for Zoe, like food was kind of all that my family talked about or thought about. Um, and I think it was partially to sort of maintaining connection to family that didn't live in the same place. Um, so my parents, when they were young and just getting married, they moved from Montreal to Vancouver. Um, and very shortly after that, my, my grandparents on my mom's side passed away. Um, and I think food was very much a love of food and a love of cooking was very much something that my mother's mom passed on to her. So I think there was always some element of food connecting me to grandparents that I never really knew on my mom's side. Um, and my dad's side of the family actually fled dictatorship in Chile and was like completely disrupted um, from all of their family ties and their network and sort of had to start again. And I think that really impacted the food practices on, on that side of the family. I guess I always found that really fascinating. Um, and just more broadly than that, I guess food was kind of always a way of connecting to my surroundings. Um, and I grew up in an extremely multicultural suburb of Vancouver and eating out was like really yeah, like a big part of my my life growing up. Um, and personally, I became interested in food as a professional subject uh, when I was working for the German Development Agency in Nepal. Um, and I was working with a project that gave seeds and other inputs to women farmers um, to help them recover economically after the, the devastating earthquake in 2015 in the Kathmandu Valley. Uh, and through there, I just kind of became, yeah, like fascinated by the connections uh, between food security to other areas of people's livelihoods. Um, and from there just became, yeah, I just totally became like enraptured by food systems as a whole. Uh, and in 2020, I started a certificate in food system studies. And that was just like really a game changer for me. And I decided that I kind of wanted all my work uh, to be related to food in some way after that. 
Um, and outside of Feminist Food Journal, I work mostly now on, on research related to food policy. Um, and I, prior to the food system certificate, I did a master in public policy. So it's just been a very, a very good fit. Um, I do with Feminist Food Journal kind of feel like now my whole life relates to food <laughs> in some way. Uh, but I must say, I'm not at all unhappy about that. Um, yeah, it's just, it's food is everything. Yeah, I mean, I can also um, really echo a, a lot of what Isabella said there, um, having grown up in a, in a household that really revolved around the kitchen and around preparing food and sharing food. Um, and I think it's always been something that I'm really interested in as a creative outlet, um, but also as something that is really powerful in both bringing people together and also marking differences between people. Um, and, and similarly, um, I think food provides a really strong sense of place or also um, can provide a connection to a place, I guess, where you aren't. So I did a, a lot of travel as a kid um, and I think food was one of my favorite ways of connecting with new places, but then also remembering those places once I was back home. And um, I uh, similarly <laughs> have done some kind of studies related to food. So my undergraduate degree, um, I started out in an applied biology program with the intention of entering um, an international nutrition program in, in my third year, which is when that program starts, um, but in the faculty of land and food systems at UBC in Vancouver. Um, and yeah, I ended up not going into the international nutrition program um, because I, I learned about another program called Global Resource Systems, um, which allowed me to apply kind of a more interdisciplinary lens to food system studies um, rather than focusing so um, closely on nutrition and nutritional sciences. Um, and yeah, unfortunately, kind of, so, so I guess starting out there, I, I had done quite a lot of thinking about food and food systems and, and food and food systems as a way of understanding um, broader uh, global dynamics, social dynamics, political dynamics, etc. Um, but I ended up moving away um, from this real focus on food systems and, and more towards a kind of broader um, work in, in global development. But I, um, I've still found that, that food as a topic pops up at various points in various other things that I've done. Um, so I, I went on to study uh, at a, ma a master's degree in international development um, and did thesis research that was really not meant to be <laughs> about food at all, but ended up focusing on um, women working in coffee houses in Ethiopia and how these co coffee houses are a site of both kind of empowerment and subjugation at the same time. And, and I think I was drawn to these places once again because I was you know, in a city that I, or I guess really a small, small city, small, large town um, by myself, um, trying to do, do research and grappling with um, all of the problematic ways in which I was engaging in this kind of extractive research of going as a, you know, a young, unqualified white woman to uh, an African country to like learn about, to, to write something for my thesis, which then I was going to get a degree from. Anyway, I, I was feeling very uncomfortable and um, and I found these coffee houses and the women who ran them to be a, a sort of place in which I could connect with people in a meaningful way, again, over food, or um, in this case, coffee and, and popcorn. Um, so I think, yeah, it just, it's kind of something that I keep coming back to um, and, and really is a way that I kind of understand and think about the world. And so um, Feminist Food Journal is um, 
is another yet another way that I can stay really connected to food and obviously um, indulge all of these um, ideas and uh, and learn so many more from the amazing authors that write for us and of course from Isabella who is a continued inspiration um, for it for this project. It's really interesting to hear you talk about how food has been a sense of belonging for you even in even in places where you know like Ethiopia where you might have felt out of place uncomfortable but there was this kind of comfort in food and it got my brain thinking a little bit right now but what food has meant to me in my life and it it was very interesting listening to both you and Isabella speak because you both had this overwhelming sense that in your formative years that food was it made you, it was something that was really, you know, again, to use the word belonging, it fostered, you know, belonging for you. And when I think about food and my formative years, I think about othering. I'm an immigrant to Canada. My parents are from India and food for me was very othering growing up. Um, I remember feeling out of place if I had to eat Indian food at school. I Remember, you know, many, I think, POC can relate to this, but the snide comments about what your food smells or tastes like. Um, Also not knowing or having access to a lot of the foods that were cultural staples. I remember, like, begging my mom to buy me Chef Boyardee when I was a kid. I didn't really understand that Chef Boyardee is actually gross, but, like, I just, like, I, I saw everybody eating it. I wanted to eat it. So for me growing up, food was really othering. I felt... Like, you know, the food I ate was a visual reminder that I did not belong. And then another part of me thinks about food kind of in my my later teens, early 20s. And I was really hesitant to let myself enjoy cooking. And I've only really started to enjoy cooking in the past two, three years. And part of that came from an almost warped idea of feminism in which I thought that in order to be a good feminist, I had to reject traditionally domestic roles such as cooking. Um, And so I feel like for most of my life, I've had this very fraught relationship with food and cooking and listening to you both speak and, and even thinking about my own experiences now and analyzing them through this feminist lens is just, it's so illuminating. So thank you. I've, just listening to your own experiences has been so interesting. That's such an interesting perspective. Um, and definitely like, I mean, I, I also grew up in Canada and of course I, I have the privilege in my family of being able to like almost pick and choose and move through different food cultures and like never be othered by that. And like, I totally remember in elementary school and in high school that, that kids who, yeah, like brought a different kind of food, um, maybe packed in a different way uh, to snack or lunchtime. Like I definitely remember like a lot of othering and cruelty um, around that and like witnessing that growing up. And that's like, it's such a good reminder of like, yeah, the privilege that that white people have essentially to be able to just sort of like pick and choose what elements of cuisines they like and, and move through it, but not have it, you know, like attached um, to a racialized identity. Um so yeah, it's like, it's so, yeah, that's such an interesting perspective to think of on, on food growing up. And like what you said about this sort of, I don't know if strained relationship is the best way to put it, but complex relationship to cooking, like totally hits, hits a chord with me. And and one of the pieces actually that I did for, for milk, um, my, my first foray into audio 
sort of explores like the more like, yeah, warped version of a feminism that I held to in my my earlier 20s and how this like sort of pushed me to look at my mom who'd chosen to work part time to stay home and to really be there for my brother and, and to cook for us and make sure that we were always like powered up and and eating healthy is like an unfeminist choice um, and sort of like personally like victimizing her for that instead of looking at like the systemic factors that would have led to her making that choice. For example, that my dad just earned way more money than, than she did and it made more sense for her to be the one at home um, to do that. Uh, and yeah, that's, it's an interesting parallel to what, to what you're saying. I think it's taken, yeah, a bit of age and and wisdom to be able to see sort of the bigger picture around the gender dimensions of of food production and consumption for sure. Yeah, definitely. And even now I'm I'm thinking about how many of the cultural foods, things like turmeric have been like, they've been trendy now. And so things again, that you were made fun of for as a kid that had cultural importance are now, I don't want to use, I don't like the word cultural appropriation, but they have been like capitalism has, you know, taken them and marketed them as these holistic foods. And they're somehow acceptable today. And again, I find that really interesting, the ability for people to detach from certain foods and from certain stigmas but to still have all the benefits of consuming those foods. Um, but yeah, I I want to move a little bit to discussing, you know, your first issue now, which, as you mentioned before, came out eight days ago. It's brand new and it's about milk. So my first question is, why did you pick milk as a topic? <laughs> it's a very good question. Um the yeah the original plan when we uh set out when we were kind of putting together ideas for this first call for papers was really just to leave the topic wide open um and and see what we got i mean we were really starting from zero so um we had no idea um how many pitches we were going to get or or um what we could expect um and so yeah we were thinking you know leave it open and let's just see what comes our way but then as we continued to discuss, we really realized that actually um, centering issues on sort of broad themes, um, something quite general like milk, um, might on the one hand provide a bit more coherence in terms of the issue itself, um, which is always nice, but then also um, might also spark inspiration and, and stories that might not be top of mind if we just put out a call that said feminism and food hit us. Um, and I'm not exactly sure um, where the idea milk came from exactly. Um, but as soon as I think Isabella said it, um, we knew that that was the perfect uh, first issue theme. Um, again, just because it's so ubiquitous, yet also somewhat controversial. Um, and of course, women obviously have a, a very unique relationship to it. Um, and and yeah, so that's how we landed on milk. And I think it was a really great choice. We were totally overwhelmed by the response that we got to our call for papers. Um, we tapped into an amazing network of dairy enthusiasts, cheese makers, and uh, feminists um, who pitched us really an amazing array of fascinating stories. Yeah, I have to agree. Reading the actual issue, when I saw you teasing that the topic was going to be milk, I pondered to myself kind of how many different articles about milk can there be, right? Like how much is going to be here? And Mm -hmm. actually having 
read a lot of the um, content now, it is so diverse. There are there are so many very different pieces here, all centered around milk, which is amazing. I didn't I didn't even think to myself that it was possible to have so much to say. And I know for a fact you guys mentioned it before that you received so many submissions. What is one thing, you know, I'm sure that there were some topics that were very expected when you put out the call for submission for milk. What were some topics that were so unique that really have stuck with you that you might not have considered before? One for me that really stuck out was a pitch on breastfeeding as cannibalism. Um, and essentially it was a look like at throughout history, I think it was in the 1700s, how Western science considered breastfeeding to be like, it was milk that was, sorry, it was blood that was blanched in the breast and then expressed to a child. Um, and that was sort of how at the time doctors and scientists understood the biological process of breastfeeding. While at the same time during that period, there was obviously a concerted effort for colonial expansion. Um, and, and colonizers were looking at people in their colonies essentially as, as referring to them as cannibals or as the other. So I think the piece really wanted to focus on this irony between othering um, colonies as, as cannibals uh, while actively partaking in a practice that at the time they understood essentially to be cannibalism. It was mothers feeding blanched blood from their breast to, to a baby. That one, at least, I'm sorry, I'm not sure if you have any other ones in mind, but that one definitely stood out. And in a way, I wish we could have commissioned it because it was definitely pretty out there. Yeah, that's definitely one that I feel like has kept coming up in our discussions. And I'm a little disappointed that we didn't commission it in the end. Um, but maybe, maybe next time, next milk issue in a few years or something. <laughs> Yeah, I, I haven't uh, I haven't read every single piece yet or listened to every single piece. Well, no, I have listened to all the audios, but I haven't read every single piece yet. But one that, I mean, I don't know if I can even pick one. There were lots that to me were so unique. Um, the one about soy milk and feminization. The also, the one about the milk boys, it was the the podcast about white nationalists and milk. That is something that, you know, never occurred to me. This kind of idea, this concept that the ability to consume and digest milk, it was linked to racial superiority. It, it was outstanding to listen to. That piece was amazing. Um, but yeah, I found all of the pieces to be so unique um, and yeah, just in incredibly interesting. So I guess I want to talk a little bit about what it was like to receive all those submissions to, to get them. What was that process like? How did you reach out to people? Did you have a network beforehand? Was it just kind of this call to submissions? Um, yeah, I mean, so as I think we've said a number of times now, um, we we were totally overwhelmed by, by how many pitches, in a good way, uh, by how many pitches we got. So we got more than 50, I think, in the end, um, which was really beyond our wildest dreams um and it was um it was pretty hard to choose i have to say because there were there was such a diverse uh, array of of different ideas um i'm i'm not actually really sure how we reached so many people if i'm perfectly honest um isabel and i have been talking about how we should really make sure that we ask people to to let us know exactly where they heard about us um when we uh get pitches for the next issues because um 
yeah, it would be good to continue to tap those networks. Um, we really just put out the call on social media. Um, we both have, have relatively large networks, although I would say kind of in the journalism space, Isabella having studied journalism definitely um, must have her finger on the pulse of some of those. Um, and I think it just got kind of reshared enough by people in um, who are um, writers and freelance writers. Um, and, and as I said at the beginning, I think um, I think the amount of interest that this topic garnered is just proof that that there needs to be um, more discussions about feminism and food and and more platforms like FFJ um, through on which that we can we can talk about these issues. Um, so yeah, we put out this call. We got a, a huge number of responses um, with kind of ideas of varying levels of uh, fullness. You know, some people with just kind of a, a a topic idea, and some people with a really fully fledged pitch. Um, we got lots of um, lots from from freelance writers, people who write professionally, but also lots from people who are just interested in in the issue or or engaged in um, the dairy industry or or the um, cultivated dairy industry or um, or perhaps even just with experience uh, breastfeeding themselves. Um, and of course we went through them. It was a rather painstaking process because they were just so many great ones. Um, but our goal ultimately was to try to get a pretty good spread. Um, so we didn't want to have a whole issue just about breastfeeding or a whole issue just about milk alternatives, but really trying to touch on all of the, the breadth of the topic um, as much as possible. Um, then in the midst of, of all of this, we also did uh, a bit of a kind of fundraising effort around the holidays. So we launched this thing called FFJ for a Friend, um, which was a really uh, great way to connect with potential readers and also to get a bit of a cash injection so that we um, can continue to pay our authors um, in, in the future issues. Um, and I think, yeah, from there we kind of, um, really had to put a lot of systems in place and learn about working with one another um, and trying to to come up with systems that that work and that also work around um, both of our busy schedules. Um, we in the end ended up splitting up kind of editorial duties so we were each responsible for three of the pieces plus then the pieces that we did ourselves which worked really well. I think we're um, we work quite collaboratively together. So just because I was editing kind of, or mainly responsible for editing one piece didn't mean of course that Isabella wasn't coming in as well and, and helping with tough sections or, or providing also um, her input. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, I was just, I was so impressed all of our authors, you know, submitted on time. I was expecting kind of to have to chase people. Everybody submitted um, these really wonderful pieces on time. We spent, uh, the over the holiday period um, had a bit of a rest and then dove back in and, and tried to get these pieces kind of polished up and ready for the issue. Um, and then last week or, or on the weekend, we, we well, last week we launched it. Um, I did the illustrations for it, which was a lot of fun. Uh, and then we hosted a launch event on the weekend, which was uh, really a highlight, I think, for both of us because um, one of the things that's been really cool is connecting with the writers and the launch event was the first time that we'd connected with them in a non uh, written format. So, I mean, all of our communication before that was all over email or obviously in the pieces themselves. Um, 
And one of the things that I think is really important to both of us is this idea of um, building community around these issues, um, but also um, really centering the voices of our authors and giving them an opportunity to tell their stories um, and trying to, of course, um, get as many authors from as many different places around the world as we can to, to showcase um, all kinds of different stories. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I think um, Isabella will agree that, that we, we both would just love to be friends with all of the people who wrote for us because everybody is so cool and interesting and brilliant. Um, so yeah, um, it's been a lot of fun. What you said about building a community really struck a chord with me because I think that's something that I have been trying to do with Super Smash Hose as well. And it's really interesting, particularly when you have such a global community, such a uh, people spread all around the world. And, you know, that is why these digital forms of media, things like podcasts, things like Instagram, things like having an online journal rather than something that's mailed to you makes a lot of sense because it's, it is much more inclusive. What are your plans going forward on how to use your community to further FFJ's goals? Yeah, Free, that's such a great point on the sort of the opportunities and challenges with trying to build a community that's online. Like one, you get that global reach and you can be much more inclusive of a wider range of folks. But at the same time, I think it's very easy for people to, yeah, just not to engage as much and, and to disconnect. Um, so we're in very early stages of trying to build a community around FFJ, uh, for sure. Um, and what this like, exactly will look like at the end, we don't know. Like, as Zoe mentioned, we really loved uh, that launch event um, and being able to bring together our writers and, and a small group of people um, who are interested in our launch. Uh, we didn't actually advertise it publicly um, because we included a ticket to it as part of that holiday uh, fundraiser that Zoe mentioned, the FFJ, um, for a friend. Uh, but I think we found like already just mostly through direct outreach that we've been able to sort of build relationships with with people actually exactly like yourself um, who have in a way become almost like champions of FFJ and then are sort of always like, you know, hyping us up and sharing our content. And then we do the same with them. And at the moment, that's probably like, you know, it's people we can count on one hand, but in a way that does, they do kind of feel like, yeah, like genuine, uh, meaningful, relationships that we're, we're excited to see where those go. Um, and especially given that, that people are working on such interesting stuff. Uh, that's, that's really fascinating. I don't know, Zoe, if you want to chime in with anything on community. No, I mean, I think, I think you've said it, like we're very much in these, the early stages of this and um, really trying to, to figure out what it means to build community. Um, but at this point, you know, it's, it, it, it's the two of us making um, connections with other people that we think are really cool and interesting. And I really hope that it will become more than kind of just the two of us um, in the, in the near future and start to feel a little bit more like a, a kind of um, nurturing um, feedback loop in which we're, we're all um, championing one another's um, work in different ways. Something else that we've been thinking about, um, especially as we launched on, on Substack and we're thinking about ways to, you know, make our model financially sustainable and, and move to a, a paid subscription model. Um, and actually we, we haven't mentioned it yet, but milk was available for free and nothing was behind a paywall, but moving forward, we will have to put some, some percentage of our future issues behind one because otherwise we won't have the money to pay our writers. Um, but in like thinking about the best way then to connect 
either with paying or non-paying subscribers. Uh, we've been thinking about, like a lot about why people will pay um, for content. And of course, part of that is, of course, people want to pay for our, our very incisive and intellectual feminist analyses on food. Um, but we've also been thinking that that people might be interested in also being able to connect with Zoe and I as sort of the, the faces behind the brand. Um, I feel a bit ridiculous calling it a brand because neither of us have built a business before, <laughs> nor do we have any idea what we're doing, but we're trying, we're trying to figure it out. And that means that then some of the content that we'll be sharing with our paid subscribers through Substack will be like behind the scenes looks um, at our process of building FFJ. Um, so yeah, like a much more, I think like honest uh, and frank look at like uh, the struggles of, you know, trying to run uh, a publication with two people who, who also have other jobs um, and like what it's been like trying to, trying to figure that all out and like what's going well, what's not going well, what we're learning, et cetera, and kind of trying to, to humanize um, the feminist, yeah, the brand behind Feminist Food Journal a little bit um, because of course at face value, it can seem, yeah, I don't want to say like highbrow, but quite intellectual. And we do try to really focus on producing accessible content, but all of it is, I guess, in some ways quite serious in tone. Um, so one way that we're hoping to build community is to be able to, yeah, like show more of the, the, the humans behind it and our, our successes and our struggles. And I think, you know, to be very clear and frank, it, it's not easy to produce content, right? Like I think it is very easy to look at an Instagram or a set of articles and as a consumer, forget about the, not only like physical work that goes into producing something like that but but the emotional labor and all the unpaid labor that goes in to creating this community this, this brand this um this journal this magazine there's a lot of work that goes into it and you know like you said paying your your writers is something that you want to be able to do but it's also the sustainable thing to do in order to put out the content that you know, readers enjoy, that people want to engage with, that the community wants to be a part of. There has to be a way to make that sustainable. Um, well, I guess you were talking about sort of the effort that goes into producing content, uh, whether written or audio, or even like you said, on social media. And like that has been, yeah, it's been a big challenge for us. Like it's just been a lot of work and content for two people to be across of at one time. Um, and we had yeah, six external writers for this issue. And then we produced three pieces in house. And it was just like a big time commitment to get these ready for the world. And that on its own was a huge, um, a huge amount of work. Uh, and then of course, then because we're so invested in making sure the content is because that's our main anyway, value proposition, making sure the content is perfect. Um, we don't have enough people power to really, you know, manage so many different areas of the publication at once, like building the business model, we had to build the sub stack. Then, of course, we're editing, producing all the pieces, always doing the illustrations. They're so incredible. She's so talented. Um, and we're trying to do social media. We're organizing the launch event. And then, of course, like PR and targeted outreach. Um, so that was, yeah, it's just for sure. Sometimes you're like, ah, <laughs> like, how are we going to do it all? Um, but to realize that, of course, like, it doesn't all need to be done at once. And, you know, like Milk, now that it's out there, it's out. So a lot of like the PR is happening now, for example, that we have room to breathe and room to reach out to different newsletters, podcasts. I don't like the word influencer, but influential people and, and publications. Um, and we can kind of, yeah, we have a bit of room to breathe and just like dedicate more time and energy to that facet of it instead of trying to get everything done in the two days before the launch. Mm -hmm. And I think, 
it's unfortunate because I think the way social media and these publications tend to work is that the faster you are, the more content you pump out, the more constantly engaged you are, the better your project will do, right? And I think even as myself as running Super Smash shows, something that I've realized is that's just unsustainable for me. It doesn't fit with the life that I am currently living, with my job, with my other life commitments. It's just, it's very hard to be doing PR, to be doing marketing, to be pushing out content three times a week, right? To be doing all of the stuff and still be putting out content that is of high quality, right? Which is, I think, the most important thing. And this kind of return to being slow, to being mindful and to putting out things that you are genuinely proud of, I think is something that we all need to get back to, but it's not something that any of these platforms really prioritize and therefore it makes building your community more difficult in a way, right? Because your content isn't getting out there. And how exactly do you balance the business side of this with your own interests of really wanting to create the the best work to really be mindful about it? So that's something that I too, I grapple with a lot and I struggle with. And I, I really have stepped back from, you know, constant social media posting because I, I found that the work is not the work I want is not what's being put out anymore. And I think that's something that a lot of people are becoming more mindful with, but it's it's a challenge to balance that with the industry need or the marketing need to always be front of mind, to have your face in front of people. And it goes back to that idea of of the community you build. It might not be the world's largest community, but it'll be community who supports you, who's interested, who every time they get an email from you, clicks it and opens it rather than, you know, sending out mass emails that 90% of the time are unopened. Yeah, I think I think we felt that a lot. And I think especially as, you know, uh, an organization of, of two at the moment, but still as people who kind of claim to um, have feminist values at our core, um, which I think are also kind of, um they don't fit with this like capitalist drive to be constantly producing and constantly um active and and productive in some way um and i think something that that got us thinking about it was this the um ffj for a friend piece that um that we or package that we mentioned at the beginning. Um, and, and for that, um, we wrote a series of recipes with little commentaries and, um, it was the end of the year. I was feeling really, um, burnt out and ready for rest and reflecting on that started, um, thinking about kind of, um, feminist ideas of rest and self-care and, um, and, the, the kind of catch or hook was was a set of recipes that were really quick to produce over the holidays. But but in writing this, I really started thinking about, OK, like if we're going to be talking about um, feminist values and talking about the importance of rest and self-care and, and kind of counteracting these, um, I guess, grind culture, um, then we also have to really be living that. But But as you very clearly and rightly point out, this is not really conducive to the um, social media marketing that is required to build a really big following. So I don't know, I, I really don't have an answer, but I, I think you've, you've put it really well, that it's something that you really have to grapple with if you're, if you're trying to launch something online 
Um, and, and I think you're absolutely right that building a following of really, um, you know, committed and engaged people is much more, um, interesting and more exciting to us than, than really building like a humongous following. Um, and I think at the end of the day, like our ultimate goal is to, is to be able to pay our writers a competitive rate, hopefully more than we were able to pay for this first issue. Um, you know, eventually to be able to compensate ourselves for our time, but it's not as if we're, you know, aiming to build some kind of multi-million dollar corporation or anything. So I think it's also really important that we keep that in mind that, that this is really an effort at sustainability, not an effort at like big profits. And, and that's reassuring. And it, it does create the space to be like, okay, no, you know what, we need to really practice what we preach and take a step back and, and reflect on, on what we're doing and how we're doing it. And, and yeah, I think ultimately I'm not interested in, in putting out content that I'm not proud of and that I can't stand behind. And I think Isabel would probably agree. So now that you have, you know, kind of looked at all these challenges that you faced, the successes that you've had with milk, you know, taken in everything that's happened to date, what's next? And, you know, not just for issues, but what's next in terms of future goals? What's next? Big picture? Yeah. So like big picture, exactly as Zoe mentioned, is that we'd like to get FFJ to a place where it's financially sustainable. And again, I don't think that's ever going to be a multi-million dollar food media empire. Um, but essentially at a place where it's covering the costs of our operations, paying our writers and compensating us in whatever we eventually deem as fair for our, our time. And of course, it's so hard to put a price on that because the work itself is in a way very rewarding. And I'm sure you probably feel the same way about Super Smash House, that when you're so passionate about something, um, suddenly the dollar value becomes like a little bit, a little bit fuzzy. Um, so it also, it, yeah, so we're not exactly sure like what, what that means for us yet, but that's the goal. Um, and it's also doubly hard to sort of land on a concrete vision for what we want it to become because our own commitments are still in flux. So I'm, I'm actually hoping to start a PhD in October. Um, and for now, Zoe is still working full time. So that, that obviously dedicates how much we can, how, sorry, that obviously impacts how much time we can dedicate to the project um, without being able to maybe pay ourselves and then take on less, less other forms of, of paid employment. Um, so that's like big picture. I guess the answer is really not sure. Like we would love to have, say, 100 paid subscribers by the end of the year. Um, we have 20 right now, uh, which actually is pretty amazing because at the moment there's no real financial incentive to subscribe um, since Milk is out without a paywall uh, and the next issue is not coming until May. Um, so you, you, people in theory will be able to access everything except that behind the scenes content that I mentioned um, without having to pay. So that that's very encouraging already. And it makes me feel like maybe like 100 is in the realm of reality. Maybe 200 one day will be in the realm of reality. Um that would be, yeah, that would be really, really exciting. Um, and I think we just need to keep sort of doubling down on our niche. And like, as you mentioned at the beginning, Farine, that you'd never seen a publication that explicitly, you know, took a feminist lens to food. I think we just really need to like hone in on that and stay in that lane. Because um, it's definitely like, it, it is a tough world out there in terms of food media. Um, and the market for this type of food media, sort of like indie, smaller is it's becoming more saturated with the rise of newsletters for food writing, um, which I guess like everything is sort of a, a double-edged sword because it allows you to communicate with your readers in a way that feels more personal um, and also requires like a lot less of your time in terms of, you know, building out um, a website and like a lot of like infrastructure there. But it does mean that 
people's time and attention, which are in, in limited so finite supply, um, is more is more stretched. Um, so you're competing, you know, with more publications to get people's attention in the same way. So I think, yeah, for now, we're just going to stay doubling down in our niche. <laughs> um, big picture, hopefully more subscribers as the year goes goes on. Um, and then zooming in a bit, uh, as you mentioned, we do have yeah a few more issues coming this year. Um, the next one will be published in May, if all goes according to plan, uh, on the topic of war. Uh, and we planned that yeah months before we now find ourselves watching a war break out in the Ukraine. Um, but we hope maybe it will even lend sort of a yeah an extra degree of timeliness uh, to the topic. And after that, we're hoping to publish Sex, uh, which would be in the summer of this year, um, and then Earth, which would be around the end of the year. Uh, so you mentioned War, Sex, and Earth as your upcoming issues. Can you tell me a little bit, maybe even just War, because you know I know the other two are much further down the line. Can you tell me a little bit about how War comes into play with feminist food, right? I, I see milk, a little bit more obvious. It's a food. Can you just give me maybe a little teaser for what war, the, the types of issues you want to explore? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So I get, there's sort of like two inspirations. And one is the one that's kind of always been more in the background. And then there was just like one very specific light bulb moment. So in the background, it's sort of, you know, in the more contemporary side, Zoe and I, we both worked in global development. And, and at the moment, I'm also working on a book about urban agriculture and forced displacement, um, which examines a lot of the linkages between women, food and conflict. Uh, and this is sort of more what you would expect to see, say, like in the Guardian Global Development column when there's a crisis that breaks out and women are on the forefront on often of famine, for example, famine or, or food used as a tool of war to starve populations. Um, and war, of course, it severs people from, from their land. So women also who make up the majority of the world's small scale farmers um, are very adversely impacted by that. Uh, and then, of course, war often puts people on the move and, and food is what often is sort of like the last link to homes that are left behind um, or the first link to, to new homes that people may have. And because of the gender dimensions of, of food practices, women are often sort of the gatekeepers of those links. So that's sort of always been in the background. Um, but this specific idea came into my mind uh, from thinking about an exhibition that I saw last year in New Mexico at a history museum in Santa Fe. Um, and it was a big exhibit on something I never heard of before, but they were called the Harvey Girls. Uh, and this was the first large group of women to work outside the home in the U.S. Uh, and they worked at a chain of restaurants that were called the Harvey Houses. It's like Harvey everything. <laughs> and they were owned by a restaurant tycoon called Fred Harvey. Um, and they were pivotal. Sorry. So they were sort of like the first. It's kind of like the first chain restaurant in the U.S. where you could go into the restaurant and like know what to expect. Um, and at the same time, they were situated along a railroad that went out west. So people who were sort of on the move then knew they could have like a good meal and good night's sleep in these hotels. And, you know, all the women working there would be in the same uniform, um, looking pretty, etc. cetera. Uh, and then during World War II, the Harvey girls pivoted to serving troop trains. And I just became like really fascinated by this narrative of like the economic empowerment that these women gained by being the first group of women to leave behind what was framed as like domestic drudgery, poverty, and homemaking, um, and be able to earn money for themselves. But then like simultaneously, they were working on jobs that were so incredibly feminized 
Um, and the exhibit talked a lot about like the incredible pressure that was put on them to maintain impeccable appearances, uh, to remain unmarried. You had to remain unmarried to work there. As soon as you were married, you were not allowed to be a Harvey girl anymore. Um, and all the lengths that they had to go to to please the very boorish American troops that were that were coming through on those trains. Um, so I guess that was it's a very specific example, but that was sort of one of the the inspiration that I had percolating in my mind when, when Zoe and I were thinking about our issue planning for the year. Something I never really thought about and, you know, having you explain it, I can see already ideas formulating in my brain about different topics even I think I could write about on that. So before we end off here, I just wanted to ask both Zoe and Isabella, can you let me know what you would tell yourself at 20 about where you are in life right now, the kinds of things you want to achieve, and maybe even some, it doesn't have to be words of wisdom, but the kinds of things you would tell a 20-year-old potentially interested in feminism and food? I think um, I think the thing that I would tell a 20-year-old me um, <laughs> interested in feminism and food, um, I think two things. I think, first of all, um, you know, not to be shy, to try to have as many conversations with as many people um, about the things that you're interested in as possible. I think um, I'm I'm pretty shy and I, I was shy um, about, especially about kind of reaching out to people um, and, and engaging with um, people that were doing really, you know, interesting work um, or just, just, people that I think um, you meet along the way. So it's easy, um, it's easy to just stop kind of conversations at this surface level, small talk where you feel safe um, and not, you know, delve into these deeper issues. But I do think like, I'm so, I'm so grateful for where I landed and I, it all came out of, you know, having those conversations with Isabella and with others. Um, and I think there are so many people out there doing so many different interesting things and, and we all have so much to learn from one another. So I think that would be one thing. Um, and then the second thing is, is not to worry so much about the, um, about making the exact right choice and step every single time, because I think that all kinds of experiences can feed all kinds of futures. And uh, I know I'm not the first to say this, but, but I, you know, it's not like every single thing you do has to build exactly towards uh, some kind of, you know, pivotal end point at which you've achieved um, something um, that you're working towards necessarily. I think that um, I, I'm really grateful for the kind of diversity of, life experiences I've had since I was 20 and maybe they didn't all seem super coherent um, at the time, but somehow in the end, looking back, they all have kind of contributed something. And so I think it's really easy to feel overwhelmed, um, especially when you're sort of beginning your adult life about making all of the right decisions at the right moment. Um, but, you know, in the end, everything everything is meaningful in its own way and it's never too late to, you know, take a jump in a different direction or do something completely new. Um, and just because you haven't, you know, ended up exactly where you thought you would or, or something like that. Um, 
yeah, I think those would be my two pieces um, of advice. Yeah, I think my main piece of advice would just be to not spend so much time comparing like your own career choices or career path to, to other people's. Um, and I think it's very easy to sort of get like sucked into looking at other people's like specific steps or specific success and think like that should have been the right choice for you to make or the right path for you to take. Um, and just to sort of remember that whatever like you've chosen to do will be the right choice for you in the end. Um, even if on paper it might not seem as conventional or, or as impressive. Um, so that's really, yeah, that's really what I would say. Farin, I was wondering if we could circle back to something you mentioned about the high-level vision, um, because I think, the, I think there was something I wanted to mention about diversity and authorship, which I think is like super important, and we didn't touch on it yet. And actually, you you sharing your experiences about food as a tool for othering rather than belonging growing up, like reiterated to me that it might be it might be worth mentioning. Um, yeah, so on that, I can just say that like a, a really important part of whatever we end up becoming and whatever the, so yeah, in our high level vision for whatever final landing point we get to um, is that in all our issues, we're very committed to diversity and authorship. Um, and that does mean explicitly seeking out and prioritizing voices of writers with marginalized identities. Um, and we really like we know that these stories are integral to understanding how food and social justice intersect. Um, as the anecdote that you shared at the beginning of this conversation it demonstrated to us. Um, and we're very conscious of the fact that as two like cis het white women that we need to be very intentional about the stories and voices that we seek out. Um, and I think both of us are really proud of the, the representation that we had in Milk um, and the global spread of, yeah, of writers and identities that we, we had there. Um, and that's something that, yeah, going forward, no matter what FFJ becomes, will always, along with yeah, feminist processes behind the business, as, as Zoe talked about, be a really core component of what we try to do. Yeah, and, you know, even just reading FFJ, that diversity really struck out to me. And I think because of that diversity, it's one of the things that made the topic so interesting because it was looked at from so many different perspectives and angles. Um, and I think that's a beautiful note to end off on. I want to thank you both so much for taking time out of your day to come talk to me. I know it's been an incredibly busy week for you both uh, with the launch of Milk, and I'm wishing you so much success with the future of FFJ. Thank you both again so much. And to all the listeners, all of Zoe and Isabella's information, the links to Feminist Food Journal will be in the show notes. Um, and I hope you check them out. Thank you. 